we've been going through this foundational framework. One thing I want to bring out is that we've added something to the foundational truths that we've hit. Anytime that we hit a landmark foundational truth, I want to make sure that we establish that because what the Bible lays early on in Genesis serves to carry our understanding of who God is as we move throughout into the kings, into the prophets, and into the New Testament. We cannot understand Jesus Christ at all if we don't understand who God is. We just can't. So that's why we're having to establish these foundational precepts. So let's go through them quickly. The Bible is God's self-revelation. God is the eternal sovereign creator and all that he creates is good. Man is a responsible agent held to a moral standard and that is the standard which God himself sets. Sin originates within a person and it separates us from God. That's what causes us to have a not relationship with him. And the new one that we have is God declares one righteous by faith alone. That's important. And just in case there's any confusion, the word alone means by itself. That's very important. You might say, well, of course it means by itself. I guarantee you a lot of what you read that is popular in the Christian market today uses the word alone, but doesn't believe that it's alone. I wish they would just leave it alone. So God declares one righteous by faith alone, apart from works. There are no works involved. Now, I wanted to make this observation because we spent three weeks dealing with concepts in in Genesis 15, verses 1 through 6. And And this observation right underneath that line. In justifying Abram, notice that Yahweh asks for no commitment or change in behavior. That's important that you get. It doesn't say, and Abram believed God and promised to be a better person and promised not to make the same mistakes and decided that he would get rid of all of whatever was causing him to stumble. Yahweh didn't ask for any of that whatsoever from him. It was the fact that Abram believed God's word. It says, it is by God's grace through Abram's faith alone that he is declared righteous by Yahweh. That is so important to understand. And I know probably in my time here so far, and and I know from listening to Pastor Steve's sermons from the past, it has been harped on over and over and over that there is no part of works whatsoever in justifying us before God. That truth should never get old. It should never get old. If it gets old, then we've stopped understanding the enormity of what that great promise of his grace is. And so I pray that our minds are set on that. But in Genesis 15, we move forward from the offspring promise into a section that deals with the land promise. And I actually thought about skipping over this, but it's just too significant to everything else in Scripture in order to move on. So verse 7, And he said to him, I am the Lord, who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this, what is it? Market, please. Land to possess it. And that word possess there, in some of your translations, you might have a little uh, number there, something to take a look at. Uh, but uh, the alternate translation in the idea of possessing here is inheriting. It is the idea of inheriting the land. 
Inheritance is an extremely important point all throughout the Old Testament, and you cannot understand New Testament inheritance if you don't understand Old Testament inheritance. Hence the reason why we're going so slowly in this situation. Notice this deals with the land. Now, Abram's response, he said, O Lord God. Now remember, capital L, lowercase o-r-d, and then capital G, capital O, capital D. Does anybody remember what that's referring to? Adonai Yahweh. It's the exact same idea that he used back in verse 2. Adonai Yahweh. And Adonai means master is the idea. Master Yahweh, Yahweh being God's personal name, his name that he desired to be known by. So notice, he appeals to him as master. How may I know that I will possess it. Now, wouldn't it have been real easy for God to just say, because I said so? Don't we often parent like that? Do this. Why? Because I said so. But how will I know that you will reward me for cleaning my room? You will know that I will reward you for not cleaning your room, right? I did. No, think about it. And it's very interesting because God wants to paint a picture for Abram. And watch what happens. Now, of course, we would never do this today, but let's get a picture of it. So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him, and he cut them in two, and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. Now, think about what he's doing here. He takes these animals and he cuts them in half. And he lays one half on this side. And he lays one half on the other side. And what he has done is he's created a pathway in between. Okay? Everybody following so far? Now, why is this important? Here's the reason why. Because you ever seen those movies when somebody makes an agreement and they'll kind of, and then they'll shake hands, which is totally gross, right? You're really hoping that some Germex or Purell is on the scene to help with that. Or some, you've seen some guys, usually like a gangster movie or something like that, they'll cut their palms and then they'll shake. Yeah, blood brothers, it's a blood pact kind of thing. They'll do that. This would be a type of agreement. This is a shaking of the hands that Yahweh is going to do with Abram. Now, pause for a second. Have you ever known Yahweh thus far to shake hands? No. So it's very interesting that he is condescending himself in order to communicate with Abram in a way that Abram can understand. I guarantee you this. He is such a personal God, he doesn't treat us any differently. He operates with us so that he can be understood, not so that he remains obscured. That's what this whole book is about. Know me. That's what the whole book is about. So notice, he lays them out like this. And what would happen is each party would agree to certain terms and then they would walk through the carcass pieces like this and step to the side and then the next person would enter in, turn around and come back and this was their agreement. And essentially what the agreement means is if I don't fulfill my obligations in this contract that we have just ratified by walking in between these pieces, may what happened to these animals happen to me for not living up to it. Now, that's pretty serious ramifications, right? You're really putting your life on the line here. 
So keep that in mind. Now, as any time that you're out in the middle of nowhere cutting animals in half, verse 11, the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs when they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. Now, of course, this is talking about God is revealing to him what is going to happen in the future, the Egyptian captivity. But he also says, but I will also judge the nation whom they will serve. And afterward, they will come out with many possessions. And that is the Exodus. Now, one thing I want you to see that is extremely important. Notice that God does not lead And it's never mentioned here, God does not lead the children of Israel into Egyptian captivity. He gives Israel permission to go. That's important to understand. He allows Israel to do what he wishes. And in Egypt, we are told later on in the scriptures, Genesis 47, that it will serve as an incubator in order to grow the people. However, God does not bring the harm against the Israelites. That is totally Pharaoh's doing. And why is God just in saying, I will judge them? Because God is not responsible for their actions. That's the reason why. The promise is clear. He who blesses you, I will bless them. But he who curses you, I will curse them. This is a promise that has not gone away. This is very important to understand. Verse 15, as for you, you shall go to the fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Now, I don't want to get on a rabbit trail, but that's worth studying in your spare time to look up the instances of the Amorites and find out what's going on. You'll have to do a lot of study in Leviticus. I don't want to belabor it this morning, but you can check it out for yourself. Verse 17, it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. Who's the smoking oven and flaming torch that passes between the pieces? God. And if God is the one passing between the pieces, and if passing between the pieces is the way to shake hands with this agreement, where's Abram? He's asleep. Does Yahweh come up and kick him and get up out of there, you lazy guy? Get in there and walk through that. Is that what happens? No. And what's interesting is, is there is never a record that Abram walks in between those pieces. What does that tell you about this covenant? It is unconditional. In fact, think about this real quick. God is making this promise to Abram. Anytime that you see the word covenant in Scripture, always think contract, okay? How many of you wish that the bank would do an unconditional contract on your mortgage, right? And all God's people said, amen, right? But that's not the situation, is it? They have the document, you sign, they sign, they get a copy, you get a copy. They want everybody to be clear. Notice here that Abram stays asleep and Yahweh alone walks in between the pieces. Everything rests on him. All responsibility is on God's shoulders, Abram's responsibility, get this, is just to sit there and get the blessing. That's all it is. 
and this may seem a little shocking, but it doesn't matter how much Abraham messes things up. It doesn't matter how much he sins. It does not negate the promise of God towards him in fulfilling it. Is there any amount of sin that can thwart God's plan? None. So notice that God's not threatened in any way by Abraham's sin. Our sin doesn't threaten God. He's not caught off guard by it. That's important to understand. This promise will be fulfilled. God has got great things he's doing. And notice that all it all centers around what? What's it center around? What's the point? Not offspring, but land. It's all about real estate. Man, God is going to great lengths about some real estate. Anybody known him as a real estate mogul? He is. So notice, verse 18, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. This is the Abrahamic covenant, okay? This is where it takes place. And here's what it says, saying, to your descendants, I have given this land. And just in case you weren't clear about where it's at, let me lay the boundary markers for you, right? Boundary markers are always a good thing. In fact, how many people have read through Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, right? Otherwise known as the wilderness wanderings for more than one reason, right? Sometimes we feel lost in that. But does God not make a big deal about moving a boundary marker? Man, he is uptight about that. He is serious about that. Here's the question, why? Because he has a plan and purpose for why people are where they are and why they are born when they are born. If you look at Acts 17, it says he places people in the countries that they're placed in and he has them born at the time that they are born in for one reason and one reason only. And that's that they would seek after God and find him and know him. People are born at the time and place they are born for the maximum opportunity to know God. That's how he orchestrates history. So when you mess with boundary markers, you are messing with his plan for people to know him. That's why he takes it so seriously. So it says here, to your descendants, I've given this land from the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Now, what is the river in Egypt that we're all familiar with? Nile River, all the way from the Nile River, stretching all the way across the Arabian desert and into the Euphrates, it runs into the Persian Gulf. That's a big piece of land. He says here, the Kenite, the Kenizzite, the Cadmonite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Rephaim, the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. Now, here's why it's important that you see verses 18 through 21. All, and I mean that capital A-L-L, all of prophetic history and prediction in your Bible rests upon these four verses, all of them. All of them rest on these four verses. You will not be able to understand anything going on in Revelation if you don't understand these four verses and the boundary markers. Why? Remember, God comes to Abram, calls him out of a pagan lifestyle, takes him to a land he'd never been to before, and gives him three promises. I will give you offspring. Through you, the nations of the world will be blessed, and I will give you a land to call your own. The offspring promise is fulfilled as declared by Moses when he's recounting their wilderness wandering right before that in Deuteronomy chapter 1. We know the blessing of the Messiah because he's died for the sins of the world. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God, correct? So everybody has that blessing because Jesus has paid for everyone's sin. But the land promise has not been fulfilled. 
It's still not been fulfilled. Even at the height of David and Solomon, as far as what the kingdom of Israel looked like, reigning out of Jerusalem, they still never occupied the full extent of that land. It is still a promise waiting to fulfill. All of prophetic history hinges on these boundary markers, every bit of it. That's why it's important to know. Now, we move into an interesting situation. Just as at the beginning of 15, Abram asked the question, God, we've been here a while. You made a promise. We ain't got no kids. Where you at? Right? Now, Sarai is going to say something. She says it a little differently, though. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Hold on a second. You ever gotten one of those texts and you're not for sure how to take the tone of the person texting you? What's this look like on paper for you? What, 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 do, you, what do you see in her words? What are some of the emotions? Bitterness. Blaming. What's that? Resentment. Do you think that maybe she's a little impatient? You can almost hear her toe tapping, can't you? Think about it. Listen real closely as I read. Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Some of us would say, come on, God! Right? The word prevented here is an interesting word. It's the idea when somebody is arrested or locked up is the word that she uses. Being hindered from moving forward. Unbelief. Interesting. Notice what it says here. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. Stop. Because that's the end of the quotations, right? Abram, we don't have any kids. I don't know where God's at in all this. But if he's the one who opens the womb and closes the womb, he's not doing a very good job. So, maybe God needs a little help. You ever tried to help God out? It doesn't work too good, does it? Why is that? He's got a plan. Anybody ever gone through a dry spell in your walk with the Lord? And you sit there for a while, and you're sitting there contemplating, you're like, I just don't have a desire to read. Every time I sit down to pray, my mind is just confused. It seems like I'm just easily distracted, just overcome with all these worry about things I never should worry about. God, where are you at? How come you can't hear me? Why is it that you don't see what I'm going through? Or if we get super dramatic about it, God, why do you hate me? Wasn't that the children of Israel? God, God has led us out here in this wilderness. He's brought us to this point where we can cross over and take this land, but he just wants to kill us. God, why do you hate me so much? 
See, we're not very different from these characters that we see in the Old Testament when we think about what we go through in life. And so the idea is to put our hands on the situation. How many of you have ever come to the point where you see a very clear sheet of glass? Now, hopefully it's why you weren't bringing drinks in from outside in the sliding door in your backyard, right? We've seen what happens with that. People run into it and fall over. And... But what's our first inclination when we see that clear glass? What do we want to do? We want to touch it. It's just like wet paint for some reason. And let's, let, here's the thing. And when you touch it, what happens? It's not clean anymore. Man, it's no different than the promise of God. God sets a promise out, and his word, when he communicates it, is crystal clear. And if we would just look to the word, we would constantly be able to see through to the other side of it, and that word should sustain us regardless of the distance, regardless of the time, regardless of the situation at hand, no matter how impatient or bitter that we get. But what happens is, is when we want to put our hands on it in order to take hold of the situation, now you don't see so clearly through that glass because we've marred it. We've mucked it up somehow. We've smeared it. All of a sudden, the promises of God become a little foggy to us. And it's not because anything he did, and it's not because his word became untrue, and it's not because he retracted his word back and said, didn't really mean it, guys. Ha, ha, ha. He doesn't do that. It's all because... Unbelief. Unbelief. Now, a common custom in that time was is that if someone couldn't get pregnant, you could easily use a handmaid in order to have as a surrogate for children. Now, if we're familiar with Israel, with Jacob in particular, we're familiar with Rachel and Leah, right? Rachel couldn't have kids for the longest time. And so they had Bilah, and Zilpah, which were great names, right? And these would be the ones we would have kids from. And next thing you know, you've got the 12 sons that become representatives of the 12 tribes of Israel. They were all adopted into the family, born into it as of their own. So this isn't a strange practice. In fact, if you research the Code of Hammurabi, for any of you history guys out there, history nuts, You'll, you'll know that this is something that's an accepted cultural practice at that time. Yeah, everybody does this. It's great. This is just how we get along. This is just how we make it. Was that the promise given to Abram? Mm -mm. So now watch this. What's that? What was said? Said no? I love it. Praise the Lord. Hey, she's listening. Some of you are asleep. It's good. <laughs> now, here's the idea. Look at the end of verse 2. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Now, this is when all the guys breathe in deeply, puff the chest out a little bit and go, mm. hear that? I'm not supposed to listen to you. Now, don't do that. You're already in trouble for the day, okay? And that's not the idea here. The idea is when it came down to weighing 
the truthfulness of statements that have been made. Abram allowed for Sarah's words to have more weight than God's promises. In fact, this is the dangerous thing that we first saw with Adam, didn't we? And Adam listened to the voice of his wife, and he took of the fruit, and he ate. What's that? Stinking women. That was Tom. And Joyce is grabbing her pen like this. Good stabbing motion, getting it ready. It's good. That's exactly what it is. It, it is exactly. It is Abram not taking the lead and saying, listen, we can't get impatient. We got to trust the Lord. Now, be honest, husbands. Nothing makes you happier than making your wife happy. Would you agree? Because if she's happy, who's happy? Man, Jim, you are trying to earn points today. I get amen about the Packers playing for things. I get amens last week about my singing voice is terrible. And then we bring this up and Jim's, Jim's trying to score points. That's okay. But we know how crucial and important that is just to the harmony of the relationship. Abram's struggle isn't any different. Especially when she's upset, right? Especially when it needs fixing. And guys, what are we good at? Fixing it. And what are we terrible at? Listening. We should have done a lot more listening to God and a lot less fixing with Sarai, right? Is the idea. Now, we wish that we could approach this text and say, you know what? I got a lot of respect for Abram because he said, sweetheart, I know you're upset. I know the last thing you want to hear out of my mouth is that we need to have patience. But let's think about who God is. And he's never failed us before. Let's hold on to that promise. Now, here's what's amazing. Look at verse 3. After Abram had lived how long? Ten years. It's been 10 years since that promise. Some of you had hair 10 years ago. Did I get your attention that way? Good. How different were things for you 10 years ago? Very different, weren't they? You think you'd ever be where you're at in your life now? Compared to 10 years ago? Man, times change. People change. Circumstances change. Jobs change. Everything changes around you. In 10 years is a long time to wait for a promised child from the creator of all things. She lost patience. And get this. Bitterness is the perfect catalyst for unbelief. It's the perfect catalyst for it. Because it becomes extremely self-centered and self-serving in its desires. After 10 years... They lived in the land of Canaan. Abram's wife, Sarah, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as his wife. Now, this is important. She's not only known as his wife now, but she's also known as his concubine, as put it later in Genesis 25. So it serves a double role. You could have that back at this time. Being declared each one. Everybody wants to lean on one side with the wife and the other side of the concubine. They could serve a dual role like that, okay? So let's not get weird. The fact of the matter is, is that Abram is not leading his home. 
He's not taking the decisive stand upon truth that needs to be had. He's not being a man in the situation at all. So notice this. He went in to Hagar, and she conceived. Yay! We accomplished exactly what we set out to accomplish. It worked, in other words. We got exactly what we wanted. Way to go, Sarah. Good job. But look what it says in the next sentence. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress, that's Sarah, was despised in her sight. She was cursed. In fact, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, when it says, those who curse you, I will curse them. And we talked about how those two words used for curse are different. The first one is to belittle somebody. The second one is, is, to, is to bring a swift uh, judgment or accusation against somebody, to hold it against them type of idea. This is the first use of that. Hagar had now accomplished something by the will of Sarai that Sarai definitely wanted but could not accomplish, and now Hagar deemed herself superior over her. Everybody see how dangerous this is? Now stop for a second. Where did Hagar come from? Egypt. When were they down there? Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 through 16. In fact, a famine had hit the land that God had led Abram to that said, I'm going to give you this land. And when times got hard, he got up and he left. And when he got into the country, he stopped worshiping God. He began to lie. And when he came out with a lot of possessions, he brought this woman with him. Notice it was a beginning portion of unbelief that led to a greater sin down the line. Everybody see how dangerous unbelief is. Please tell me you get it. Okay. I don't have to do something drastic. Okay. You don't know what I'm capable of. Might pluck out Tom's beard. I don't know. (laughs) Moving on here. Verse 5. And Sarah said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be upon you. Now all the guys' shoulders just went up, teeth gritted, right? But sweetheart, you told me to do this. Aren't you thankful? See, Abraham was a smart enough man not to say that, right? But what does she do? It's your fault, Abram. Now I'm in the position being degraded by the one that we brought back that used to serve us because she can have children and I can't. It's your fault. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she, when, when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. May the Lord bring judgment because of this situation. Man, she's an emotional wreck, isn't she? And I love how Abram handles it. But Abram said to Sarah, behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what's good in your sight. She stays, she goes, Whatever. I mean, that's kind of the attitude he's bringing to the table, isn't he? You can do whatever you want to her. She only served the purpose for bringing us a child. Eh. Pretty heartless to me. So Sarah treated her harshly. Now, what's interesting is this doesn't pin down anything, but this could be everything from, at its its least meaning in the word, 
She suffered humiliation by Sarai, or it could mean that Sarai actually brought up means of violence against her. I mean, technically, she's a piece of property. She can do whatever she wants. So it's odd. So it says here, and she fled from her presence. Now, verse 7, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. Then the angel, who can also be understood as the messenger, the messenger of the Lord, said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Now stop for just a second. The whole reason why she left was because times were bad. The whole reason why she left is because she was being treated like dirt. And now I've got this supernatural being telling me, no, 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 go back. Would you do that? Would you? I mean, if you were being treated like garbage, and who this is, I mean, we know who the angel of the Lord is, correct? It's the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Go back. Mm, I don't think so. Maybe you need a little something extra in order to get you there. It says here, Verse 10, moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. This is how you know that this is God appearing to her. Because no angel has ever been known to multiply people and guarantee promises like this. It comes directly from God himself. So notice this. It'll be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her further, behold, you are with child and you will bear a son And you shall call his name what? Ishmael. And Ishmael means the Lord hears you or the Lord hears. And here's the reason why. Because she's been rejected. She's been used. She's been cast away. She's fled in order to avoid persecution. Was she wrong in having her attitude that she did? Yeah. But the repercussions of that are probably greater than she ever thought they would be. And now here she is in the middle of nowhere. Nothing left to do but die. She's now told to go back. Well, when I'm faced with death or go back into this situation, God, I don't know. I'm not sure. Doesn't sound too promising to me. Well, let me give you some blessings. Number one, you're going to have a lot of people. Number two, you're going to bear a son. You're going to call his name the Lord hears because his name is going to commemorate when you cried out to me, I came and I answered you. Names have meaning. I want you to remember that when you were in need, every time you look at your son, you will know that I am here to provide and take care of you. Now, there's this idea because of Ishmael being who he was and later becoming who he is as a nation, that for some reason he was not saved and went to hell when he died and all this stuff like that. The scriptures never point in that direction. Scriptures never do. So let's get that out of our minds. It says here, And you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. Now pay attention to this. This is very important. He will be a wild donkey of a man. You ever describe somebody like that? (laughs) Hey, I noticed that such and such had a couple of kids. What are they like? Well, one of them is going to be a wild donkey of a man, I can tell you that. Right? It's probably what's said about Nathaniel, right? But notice, that's going to be his attitude. 
This guy, now what does it mean to be a wild donkey? A wild donkey of a man. See, we're all scared now. We don't want to talk. What's that mean? Well, number one, who is Ishmael the progenitor of? What race? The Arabs, which is interesting. Okay, so the Arab race. What have the relationship between the Arabs and the Israelis been like? Oh, man, they're brothers. Aren't they getting along, going to the movies together, having bacon sandwiches? I mean, are they doing any of that? That's a joke because Jews and Muslims don't eat bacon. Okay. <sighs> Rough crowd this morning. <laughs> turkey bacon, having turkey bacon sandwiches, right? He'll be a wild donkey of a man. There's his attitude. Look what it says in the next part. His hand will be against everyone. Stop. Is that an understatement? Good grief. In fact, I encourage you if you get the opportunity. Uh, some of you know because there's radio programs around here, Brandon House, you familiar with him? He's been running some things lately, and he's actually had Dr. Andy Woods on there, and they've been talking about the influence and the influx of Muslim and Islam ideology upon European culture, American culture, what they're seeking to accomplish. If you get the opportunity to get on the Internet, you can listen to some of that stuff. It's extremely eye-opening and interesting, very much so. So I encourage you to take the time to do that, if for no other reason that it's rooted right here in this major mistake that this family has made. The next one, everyone's hand will be against him. Is that true? Notice for his action towards everybody, there's going to be a reaction from everyone against him. And he will live to the east of all of his brothers. Is that true? It is. Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Iran, Pakistan, Afghanistan, any other stand? They're all there, right? They're all there. Now, here's what's incredible about this. Anytime that you've turned on the news from probably as far back as you can remember, and if you watch it for any length of time, especially if it's CNN or something like that, you're going to hear something about the Israeli-Palestinian what? Conflict. It almost rolls off the tongue like it's, that's just how it is. That's just how it is. They've always been fighting over everything. In fact, let me give you a date, see if you can tell me what happened. May 14th, 1948. No, Tom had his 100th birthday. <laughs> Just kidding. Israel became a nation. And here's the amazing thing. Whenever Israel became a nation, and Harry Truman declared it, working the phones, a whole deal you can read about it in certain places, it's very interesting. At that moment, six... Six Arab countries declared war against the newfound nation of Israel. 1.2 million trained soldiers were immediately called into action to go and to attack them. Now, Israel on that day had 800,000 people, men, women, children, all included. They didn't have the elite air force that they have now. But here's a question. What did they have? the hand of God. 1.2 million people ready to attack you. In fact, isn't it just a miracle of God that Israel is sitting over there where it is and all the surroundings that it has? You can't tell me that the prophetic time clock should be neglected. There's all kinds of things going on over there. Israel 
right or wrong, is blessed by God for one reason and one reason only. His promise is sure. He will always, always hold to his word. Does that mean that God condones sin? Never. And has he disciplined Israel when they've sinned? Absolutely he has. But notice that his promise is sure. Notice there's not a problem there. It says here, verse 13, Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God who sees. For she said, Have I even remained alive here after seeing him? Therefore, the well was called Bir Laharoi. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Now here, to me, Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, God looked upon the hearts of men and saw that it was only evil continually. That's a scary verse to me, okay? It's a very frightening verse. There's a verse also mentioned in Matthew 24, and the love of many will grow cold. That's a scary verse. To me, this is also one of the scariest two verses I've ever read in the Bible, and I want you to just think upon it for a second. Verse 16, Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. Now, the big problem that we run into when we deal with this whole idea of chapter headings, verse numbers, chapter numbers, it kind of causes a mental break sometimes. We don't continue to read through the passage in order to move on to what the thought is. But there's not a break in thought in the original here. It's important to see. So in verse 16 here, we're dealing with the fact that when, when Ishmael was born, Abram was this age. And then what's amazing is, is the very next verse. Now when Abram was, how old? 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram. Pause. What happened? Does everybody see the weight of why this is so scary? Abram took this situation into his own hands when God had spoken clearly. Not only that, but in moving forward and sinning in this way, God stopped talking to him. Thirteen years. Silence. Now, if, if, if we just took what we know and went back to chapter 11 when we first came upon Abram and we talked about how he was called out of the land and we're going to bring you to a place and here's what I'm going to do with you. I'm going to make your descendants as many as the stars in the sky and the sand and the shore. Through you, I'm going to bless everyone that will ever live. Through you, I'm going to give you this land that you've never known before. And even some of the stuff that we skip, take, take a second and go back, okay? Go back to chapter 12. Think about what goes on here. They travel through. He pitches his tent there in chapter 12. Then it happens when they have the famine, verses 10 through 20. They're in Egypt during that time. God's watching over them. They come out, verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 1. They go back up to the Negev. He's very rich in livestock. And then as it was at the beginning, he begins to worship Yahweh once more. 
You move on down through here, and he has this problem with Lot. Lot's accumulated a lot of possessions. Abram's accumulated a lot of possessions. We can't handle being together anymore. Your cows want to eat what our cows want to eat. We got to split up, man. We got to separate this out. So they go their own ways. God makes another promise. If you take a look to the east, south, northwest, it doesn't matter where Lot chose. I'm going to bless you with all of this, Abram. It's all yours. My hand will give it to you and to your descendants. God is talking. God is reassuring. God is encouraging. He is building up. He is showing himself to be faithful. He is using these life lessons to give to him. Then we have this great war of the kings in chapter 14. We didn't deal with it. But there's this great war that goes on with some of the kings from Sodom and Gomorrah. Abram takes 300 guys or so, comes in, and deals with the whole situation. Why was he successful? Because everybody worked out at Gold's Gym? No, because everybody was doing P90X? No, because everybody had their protein shake? No. It's because they had God fighting for them. Evidence, 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 evidence. Over and over and over. Over and over and over. And now we get to this one situation. Times get tight. The wife is upset. The promises don't seem to be happening. But we've been waiting this long. How long were they in the land when this happened? Ten years. And how old was Abram when this happened? Eighty-six. And then God says nothing for how long? Does everybody realize that that means it was 24 years in the land before this promise ever became true? 24 years is a long time to wait. Depending on life expectancy, some of us would sit and go, you know what, that's a third of my life. You know what, that's a quarter of my life. Waiting a quarter of your life for God to just do what he says. How does that sit with us? I mean, we've been going to McDonald's for so long, we can't handle that anymore. We want to drive up. What did you like? Right? And you deal with that. You know, I'd like, let me read it back to you. And then what do you do? The convenience of it is you go, thank you. Done. Give it to me. Here's your money. And you drive off. Right? And you live in your greasy paradise and we're all happy. Right? We, we are so expectant. Do you think that the church suffers from that mentality? Do you think that there is a lot to learn? And here's the great thing. Here's the great thing about the Bible. It's got everybody's dirty stuff in here, doesn't it? It's got everybody's mistakes, trips, falls, bang their head on something, right? Fell off the ladder. All these mistakes that everybody's made, it's all here. The essence of wisdom, if you don't get anything else, please get this because I desperately need it. So I'm going to say it right now for myself. I'm preaching to me. Y'all are just listening, okay? The essence of wisdom is seeing the mistakes that somebody else made and then going in a different direction. That's so important to understand. How'd it work out for that guy? In fact, isn't that what Solomon constantly goes over in the Proverbs? Don't be like that guy. In fact, parents, isn't that like the desire of your heart when you find out who your kid's hanging out with? Don't be like that guy. Don't do that. Why? Because they're stupid. And we want to be gentle when we say it, but let's be honest. There's something in our mind thinking, what in the world is going on? What in the world are they thinking? 
We're so expectant. Immediate results. Now, now, now. You see it everywhere, don't you? People are so expendable today. Well, that guy's not making the company enough money. Let's get rid of him. Oh, well, we've had that coach for two years. He hasn't turned this football team around. Let's get rid of him. We just get rid of him. Got to go, got to go, got to go. Because we need results now. Get this. God has a development plan. He is developing his people. Now, since we're getting close to the season, let me give you an illustration. How many people love Charlie Brown Christmas? I love it. I love it if for no other reason it seems to be the only clear-cut place where the gospel can still be on TV anymore, okay? Linus, the evangelist, right? We love him. But does everybody remember the tree that Charlie Brown brings back, right? Charlie Brown, we're going to sit here and do our dance. Why don't you go pick out a tree? And he's looking through, and he's bothered by the commercialism of it all, and he brings back the tree, and the tree looks like this, right? Little twigs here and there, but let's be honest, it's just a, it's, it's a nightmare. It's a stick of a tree. And so as he's walking away because he's been rejected by everybody for what he got, he comes up to Snoopy's monstrosity that he just won first prize in a lighting contest. Everybody remember that? You've really got to know this to go with me. If you've never seen this, this is just dying on the vine, right? And what does he do? He takes off the little ornament and he puts on the top. And what does the tree do? All right, and everybody did it, right? I saw your hands. You all went. Exactly. Because when you try to spruce it up quickly, when you try to get the immediate results, it falls over and it dies. You don't allow for the time for it to grow. We stop being patient, not just with people, but with God's promises. We stop, dirty word in the Bible, waiting on the Lord. And isn't there a lot to be said in the Psalms about the nature of worship and waiting on the Lord? Is there not? Waiting on the Lord. Why? Because the safest action is the one that he takes, not us. If anything, our steps should be the reaction to his leading. See, that's where we can get real messed up. This church needs to have instant success. Well, we need to do this to attract a lot of people. Well, we need to be this way. Well, we need to take on this marketing scheme. We need to do... There's a lot of stuff that people do in church. It doesn't matter about the cross of Jesus Christ. That is the reason why people should be attracted in this situation. One of the greatest crimes that we could ever make by being impatient, by suffering from the same ill decision that Abram made in here is to be churning out from this body a lot of Charlie Brown Christmas trees. As soon as you meet some sort of opposition, as soon as times get hard, as as soon as somebody puts some sort of weight on you, you fall over and you die. God is in the business of making redwood trees. That takes time. He wants roots to be deep, and he wants them to be nourished from one channel, and that is belief. Belief in his word. Where's my Bible? Belief in his word. 
That's what it's about. This principle we learned from Abraham should not be lost on us today. Please don't let it go in one ear and out the other. Waiting on God is worth it. It's worth it. Let's pray. Father, whatever we're struggling with today, if we're disgruntled about something, if we're impatient, if we're insecure, if we're overcome with anger, bitterness, anxiety, Lord, if we have ill will towards a brother or sister in Christ, Lord, if we're just having a bad day, Father, please speak to our hearts now as we've read your word that it would reinforce us in the security of your promises. Father, not to take situations in our own hands, not to beat our chest and to talk about what we deserve, but Father, to wait upon you, to rest in you, to know that your timing is perfect, that your plan is perfect, and that any fingerprints we put upon the glass will only obscure what we need to see to keep us going. Father, let us be patient to be developed deeply, to remain true and steadfast and persevere in difficult times. Father, I pray that if we're looking at our lives and we realize that we've stepped away from you, Father, let us cast ourselves again on your mercies. You are gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You are good to all and your mercy is upon all that you have made. So Father, help us correct our thinking. Help us identify those things in our lives that maybe have led us away from a full-fledged trust in you. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.